Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, everyone. Marcel here. Before today's episode, I want to tell you about a new show that we are loving at Witch Please Productions, the Culture Study Podcast with Anne Helen Peterson. If you don't already know it, I'm convinced that you're about to fall in love with a new podcast. And this is coming from me, Marcel, someone who famously doesn't really listen to podcasts. Culture Study is a podcast about exploring the nooks and crannies of the culture that surrounds us. Each week, Anne and a super smart co-host will answer listeners' questions about the stuff they find interesting and perplexing, like, why do clothes suck now? And... Is Paw Patrol copaganda, or is it not that deep? And, like, what's the deal with everyone I know getting a divorce? Just like Anne's tremendously popular newsletter of the same name, Culture Study Podcast is funny, insightful, and kind of weird. And it's guaranteed to help you become the most interesting person at parties. Listen to the Culture Study Podcast every Wednesday, wherever you get your shows. Who knows? Maybe you'll recognize some guests in the coming months. Don't lie, you find heterosexuality to be viscerally disgusting. It's not untrue. Who doesn't? <laughs> That's my real question. Give uh, me your answer to which, please. <laughs> Hello and welcome to Which Please? A fortnightly podcast about the Harry Potter world? I'm Marcel Cosman. I'm Hannah McGregor. And I'm Neil Barnholden. Quick question, what are we all doing here? I thought the podcast was over. I thought it died a month ago. That's a good point. What are we doing here? I don't know. Maybe we're like podcast ghosts? Like, we can't move on until we've addressed our unfinished business. Well, get braced for an extra spooky episode, listeners, as we bring you our discussion of the seventh Harry Potter movie, 2010's Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows, Part 1. But before things get too ghoulish, let's read IMDb's hauntingly brief synopsis. As Harry races against time and evil to destroy the Horcruxes, he uncovers the existence of three most powerful... Yep, no, I'm reading this correctly. He uncovers the existence of three most powerful objects in the wizarding world. The Deathly Hallows. That reads like a bad translation (laughs) from another language. (laughs) Deathly? Hallows? Yeah, that sounds right up our spooky alley. Know what else the restless dead are really into? Professor Time with Marcel, our segment on filmic adaptation that has been dead for ten years. (laughs) 
my role in this segment has been dead for 10 years. Yeah, I have a question inspired by the boy who narrated segments in the book sections. Ooh, that's my ghost sound. <laughs> It's oh, wow. a very upbeat ghost. <laughs> my my question is, who, if anyone, is narrating this film? Is it a is, is this a trick question where you have some kind of film degree answer to it, and you just want to prove that we don't have film degrees, or is this like a legit question? Oh no, not at all. I think I mean it doesn't it doesn't have a narrator in the obvious sense of someone who is vocalizing what is happening or who the story is told through. But I guess I mean a narrator in the more general sense of just what point of view or what stance is this story being told from? It's really interesting to see how, like I would argue that, that the perspective varies wildly between moments where you as the viewer are expected to be sort of like intimately acquainted with what's going on um, in a way that suggests a narrative perspective more like the books um, where you're like inside the head and life of one of the characters. And then other moments where it's like, it's weirdly treating you as though you don't know what's going on or as though you're an outsider looking in. Yeah. Right. So for example, the scene where um, Harry and Hermione have gone to Godric's hollow mm -hmm. and Harry starts speaking in parcel tongue with um, Batilda <sighs> Bagshot mm -hmm. and we just get the parcel tongue yeah. instead of like them speaking English. Like that's how Harry speaking parcel tongue in the past has been represented as him speaking English mm -hmm. and understanding the snake speaking English. And we only find out afterwards that to other people, he seemed to be speaking parcel tongue. Mm -hmm. And those moments suggest that we're, we are as viewers in Harry's head. Mm -hmm. But in this movie, we see the parcel tongue and have no idea what they are actually saying right. and have to sort of interpret the fact that Harry doesn't realize that they're speaking parcel tongue, mm -hmm. but we know. Mm -hmm. And then the other scene that, that seems to do something similar is the scene where Ron has stormed off um, purportedly because he thinks that Harry and Hermione are in love and don't want him there. Aww. And then the very next scene between Harry and Hermione is a scene that looks like the two of them are about to like have sex. <gasps> and it, it's, again, sort of leading us as viewers to be like, oh, my God, was Ron right? Are they in love? And then it was like, oh, no, of course they're not. We know that they're not. Right. We've known that they're not all along. But, like, just a couple of moments where, like, you're positioned weirdly as a viewer. I wonder if that has to do with the fact that the director is faced with the task of making a movie that is based on a book so deeply built on six previous books for an audience who many of whom will have read all of the books religiously and many of whom at some point stopped reading them and said I'm going to wait for the movie mm -hmm. so if we go back to that example of Harry and Bethilda talking in parcel tongue if you don't know from the books that Harry doesn't realize that they're speaking in parcel tongue I'm not totally convinced that seeing that scene, you wouldn't know that they are doing that and Harry doesn't realize it. Whereas if you've read the books, then you're like, oh, Harry doesn't realize that they're speaking in parcel tongue. That's why Hermione's downstairs. Da, 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 da. But then at the same time, the movie is also just like built on chunks of exposition because it's like, hey, you've probably never read these books. So like, here's like the last six books worth of information, like summed up into a couple key, a couple key points. Yeah. So it was, I don't know, it's weird. <laughs> it's got like a weird feeling to it. Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about that exposition. 
Neil. Neil? <laughs> yeah, we we noticed really early on watching this movie that there is so much exposition that to keep the narrative interesting, the movie seems to have to have a lot of different strategies for providing exposition, mm-hmm. whether it's a character being unusually gossipy or... Um, I think in the case of the trace, uh, when Matt Moody is re-explaining <laughs> it, he is in fact quite annoyed that the other characters don't remember what the trace is and needed to be explained to them. Totally justifiably, uh, and I, I mean sometimes I think the exposition is really interesting, as in the story of the Deathly Hallows. That's mm-hmm. a really interesting way to deliver information, and sometimes it seems very repetitive. Very yeah. repetitive. What are your thoughts? Well, one of the things that I find the most surprising is that the scene from the book of exposition where Elphias <laughs> and Auntie Muriel are gossiping about um, about Dumbledore and all of that. So that scene of exposition is actually like more or less the same. It's not as interesting as the one in the book, mm-hmm. but it's it's pretty similar, right? It yeah. functions the same way in the book where Muriel is like, you didn't know all of these things about Dumbledore? Well, let me tell you. And that is like the least interesting um, demonstration of exposition that we get in a film that is otherwise like packed mm-hmm. with yeah. filmic adaptation exposition. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's just really interesting to me that they couldn't make that any better. <laughs> I was thinking about flashbacks and I was like, oh, you know, that would be that would be a scene where in another kind of movie you might have a flashback about like Dumbledore's past. Um, But there seems to be, and this brings us kind of back to that question of narrator. Ooh, that's how you say that word Mm -hmm. in that, like there are laws around whose memories you can have a flashback of in movies, right? Like you can only have flashbacks of characters in the movies who would have that information. Like you can't have a flashback of something that none of the characters in the movie would know. Mm -hmm. Right. But it seems like here we can only have flashbacks of Harry's knowledge, yes. which is a sort of like a last vestige of how in the novels we only see things through Harry's perspective. Mm-hmm. That's one of the few ways in which that's still really present in the movie is that mm-hmm. even though we have other characters who could have flashbacks that would tell us stuff we don't see, mm-hmm. their stuff we only see Harry's flashbacks, mm-hmm. which, as Neil pointed out, are represented identically to Harry's dreams of the present of what Voldemort is doing right which yeah. is very confusing mm-hmm. yeah I, th- I think I think you're right to point out it's a particularly interesting problem in this movie because there are flashbacks that the character of Harry Potter actually has or actually participates in in a strange kind of way and I was thinking about the earlier movies uh, where we also go into other characters memories um, most notably Dumbledore's which is another form of a flashback, but it's not, it's sort of a diegetic flashback. It's not that we're seeing something none of the characters are seeing. We're sort of going along into the memory of a character. It's very confusing, but it's very interesting to me that the series has built up so many different ways to provide exposition to us. (laughs) And I mean, I gotta say, I think in some ways it's pretty remarkable that there's really only one scene where it seems extremely clumsy. (laughs) I mean, the other scenes where for so much of this movie, Harry and Hermione and Ron are trying to find characters and just ask them to describe things that happened to them recently Mm -hmm. or perhaps longer ago uh, that works pretty well i mean you almost don't notice that it's a lot of exposition Mm -hmm. so you're talking about 
this is still sort of on the topic of like who the narrator is, because one of the things that we do get in the seventh book that comes through in this movie is more scenes of like what life is like at Malfoy Manor, what life is like for the Death Eaters now that Voldemort has returned to power. Severus, I was beginning to worry you had lost your way. Come, we've saved you a seat. Um, and it's obviously super shitty. We know that from the books. But uh, there's lots of things about that scene that were that were just interesting to see how they mm-hmm. represented it. One thing that really struck me is that I remember from reading being really aware of how shitty things were for the Malfoys now. Had they fallen out of favor? Mm-hmm. How frightening this must be for Draco, who is going to have just like killer PTSD. Mm-hmm. But one thing that really struck me about this scene was how oh, obvious yeah. it is that everybody at that table is terrified of him. Come. Surely one of you would like the honor. Hmm? What about you, Lucius? I also think it's interesting that not just is the idea of muggle studies invoked for what I think is the first time in the movies. To those of you who do not know, we are joined tonight by Miss Charity Burbage, but Muggle Studies is brought up, and also Voldemort uh, briefly denigrates the concept of Muggle Studies. Was Muggle Studies? It is Miss Burbage's belief that Muggle, which immediately becomes about breeding and having children and the purity of bloodlines. She would, given her way, have us mate with them. To her, the mixture of magical and muggle blood is not an abomination, but something to be encouraged. Which makes sense, but I think is interesting that in the same scene where it becomes apparent that really dark, dark shit is going to happen in this movie, um, specifically this sort of idea of, I don't know, multiculturalism or miscegenation or even you could maybe think of... Depending what, on what word you like to use for it. Yeah, however you want to think about it. But but I was even thinking it's it feels to me also like an invocation of women's studies, for example, mm. of the sort of concept of mm. academically studying right. uh, sort of community, less privileged communities or things mm. like that. Um, yeah. And I, I just think it's interesting because... There's also a scene later of the new Minister of Magic explaining yeah. what the Ministry of Magic is now all about. Yeah. So that's my segue into another scene that we wanted to talk Good about. Job, Neil. <laughs> segue King. Wait, can you say the name of the character, the new Minister for Magic? Though? His name is Pious Thickness. <laughs> Pious Thickness. His name is Biggest Dickus. <laughs> Like what? But it a, might as well be. It, it might, might as well, well be, be right. Actually. Like what an appropriate name for the minister who takes over in a regime that is denigrating the film's equivalent to disempowered people, mm-hmm. yeah. right? Yeah. So we talked about this in the books, um, in terms of the replacement of the statues, which we found really mm-hmm. interesting. Um, but the the speech that Pious Thickness gives is also really interesting because of the narrative, as Neil point Neil was pointing out, the narrative of a return to greatness, mm-hmm. right? A sort of return to 
origins, um, this image of a sort of primordial version of what society needs to look like, which we see all the time with fascist discourse, Mm -hmm. make America great again. Mm -hmm. It's exactly the same kind of discourse that there is this pure origin of our society that has been denigrated or polluted by the presence of the other and the violent expulsion of the other will allow us to return to that origin. It's the same thing that Nazis also said. And it's the same thing that the new ministry is saying. I found it really interesting that thickness in that speech. <laughs> Fuck. Fuck you, Roland. <laughs> dare you put dick jokes in your book it's for children they don't know about dicks especially not 17 year olds yeah Yeah, during thickness during his speech gives this sneering reference to how the ministry had become a temple of tolerance Mm -hmm. and that was so interesting for me because tolerance is not a good thing (laughs) tolerance is not what we are aspiring for in a multicultural society tolerance just means we're not actively trying to murder you if you're not like us Mm -hmm. like whenever i say tolerance marcel just scowls because she feels (laughs) the same way about that language as i do which is like tolerance is just a shitty thing that white people say when they want other white people to think that they're not racist (laughs) without actually having to give up an iota of their privilege So we are going to talk about print culture later on, but I think that we just want to mention something that Neil noticed in a print culture moment when Harry is in the ministry going through the wanted posters. The wanted poster for Dumbledore lists him as Half-Blood. The movie has a way to solidly confirm that Dumbledore is a Half-Blood in a kind of interesting way that... It doesn't ever seem to be very relevant to the plot or even necessarily thematically. Mm. And yet it it seems to me that in some way it's a very important fact about Dumbledore that we're not really told except in this printed matter that we briefly see a shot of in the film. So which of his parents was a muggle? I'm actually not sure that that's what Half-Blood means in the way that the Ministry interprets full-blood, half-blood, Muggleborn. I think that half blood just means that you do not have a pure line. Oh, it's the one drop rule. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's what I think is. Want to explain? Hey, you want to explain blood quantum for our listeners? Uh, sure. (laughs) So, blood quantum is an astonishingly racist concept, but it's particularly scientific racism because it sounds like science, but actually. Science! Things that happen in a beaker! It's essentially it's essentially the concept uh, of, uh, I suppose, purity and degeneration, that it takes one drop of non-white blood to not be considered white, uh, and it doesn't matter how much, or the proportion doesn't matter, the actual amount doesn't matter. So analogously, the suggestion is that if Dumbledore has any ancestor who is a muggle, then he is half-blood, which actually I think is perfectly in keeping with how the Ministry and Voldemort uh, think of the world. Mm-hmm. I fully believe that. But it's, it's I think, called blood quantum because it's the idea that even a, an, an amount as small as a quantum of blood uh-huh. is enough to taint the ferocious frailty of whiteness. Yeah. Whiteness is so it's fragile! So fragile. <laughs> 
It's amazing. <laughs> and that's interesting. We start to get into the ways that uh, wizard purity and muggle taint. You said taint. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I was, I was Sorry, really... I meant muggle chode. <laughs> <laughs> I was trying so hard to think of a word other than taint, and I thought of degeneration, which is not the same thing. Yeah. It's a taint. It's You're a totally taint. Right. It's a yeah. taint. Yeah, so there's, there is this this racial coding in the way that um, the seeking out of Muggleborns and Half-Bloods is being represented in this movie. And that also sort of reminds us of the importance of passing mm. in the movie, right? Mm. That, that because these identities are not readily readable on the body, you get this kind of anxiety of those who are successfully passing and those who are not. And by passing... Again, sorry for those of you who don't know, passing is language that is used for people who might have blood or or heritage that is black or just non-white within white supremacy, mm -hmm. um, but who can pass as white and who sometimes do deliberately pass as white. But then the anxiety is attendant on that with the sort of the sense that your identity is a performance that must be constantly managed and is being constantly mm. scrutinized. And we really, in our moments in the ministry, we really see that, like mm -hmm. what it is like to live now in a world in which you are being constantly scrutinized. Um, and I guess, I mean, it has, again, those Nazi themes going as well, because um, Jewishness is also not an identity that is readily readable on the mm -hmm. skin all the time. And that idea of sort of having an identity that is, understood biologically by a totalitarian government that wants to wipe it out and the sort of anxiety around passing mm -hmm. and being able to claim your identity to be something else than your government thinks it is. I think to to um, use a hot button issue in oh, contemporary yeah. times, we can Ooh, also... Ah, that button's so hot. So Ooh. hot. <laughs> oh, hot mic. Hot button. Hot issue. Hot takes. Hot, oh, hot takes. takes. <laughs> Serving oh, them up, which please. Hot eats cool treats. <laughs> what? We, we treat you right. <laughs> Come on, Neil. Oh, Fuck. Yeah. Oh my god. Yeah, so to use a contemporary example, mm -hmm. we can also think about passing in terms of gender and the ways mm -hmm. in which um, people who are gender non-binary or whose gender does not correspond to the sex that they were assigned at birth. So an example of the use of passing for people who are gender non-binary or transgender um, would be somebody who was born and was assigned female at birth, but who lives and dresses in the gender that we might describe as masculine and they do that so successfully that they are able to go into men's washrooms without being harassed or hassled or whatever. Uh, the reason why I think this is useful to bring up um, is because if we're talking about totalitarianism, I think that it would be really a really good idea to um, talk about how totalitarianism is not something that is in the past or singularly no. singularly limited to orange men with bad hair no. running for presidency. It is also part of the society that we live in when we want to police people's gender identities. Mm -hmm. That is a totalitarian thing. It's like you were born with these genitals. You therefore need to dress in these ways, behave in these fashions and use these kinds of toilets. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's nonsense. And the the anxiety around, you know, trans people in bathrooms, mm-hmm. which is like, oh, if if those people come into this space, they will present some sort of danger. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is fascist language. Mm-hmm. It absolutely is. And we see it being played out in this movie. And we also see how it is played out in the management of spaces, of who is allowed into spaces and who is not. Because that's what, like, fascism is always, with its obsession about purity, is always also an obsession with the movement of bodies and the spaces that some bodies can occupy and others can't. So use that next time you're fighting with somebody about um, all gender bathrooms. <laughs> Put that in your uh, your holster. What, uh, what connects the gender and race uh, ideas of these things is that fascism really, really relies heavily on absolute categories that mm. cannot be transgressed mm-hmm. at all. I was making fun of it earlier because it's horseshit, but... I think that's what the concept of the blood quantum is, actually, that if you have any mixing of quote-unquote race whatsoever, that proves that the category is not stable at all. Mm -hmm. And I think in a society like Nazi Germany or, uh, you know, Canada, um, that's (laughs) actually, I I mean, it's completely essential to how things work. So I I think of... um, uh, yeah, I, I mean, I, I totally hear what you're saying about gender expression, too. But I mean, also in a racial sense, the identity of every Canadian citizen is completely determined in a very real, very material legal sense is determined by, if not the blood quantum, then a concept that is totally based on the same assumption mm-hmm. of just stark categories. Yeah. And I, th- I think that's exactly how it works with gender as well. Yesterday, a calgarian politician made a bit of a a bit of twitter news by accusing our beloved ndp provincial government of being sex marxists <gasps> which was amazing but what this guy said in a subsequent tweet was that gender is the last fundamental category and if we lose that we will lose everything <laughs> And it was it was like textbook fascism, right? Like we need to have categories that are pure and essential and solid and unquestionable because if I don't have those, like how will I know who to hate? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> how will I know whose voices to take seriously and whose voices to dismiss? Well, or as in Deathly Hallows, as we see, how will we know who to remove from society completely? <laughs> yeah. Oh my god, you guys, fascism is so boring. (laughs) Speaking of racism, we have yet another person of color getting written out of the movies. Oh, yeah. Um, Yeah, I mean, this is, we've talked about this before, about how even compared to the sort of tokenistic books, the movies just take out people of color entirely. Mm -hmm. And uh, most recently, uh, Dean Thomas has disappeared. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, So what impact do you think that has on the movie, Marcel? Well, I think it is a genuine mark of my internalized white supremacy that it wasn't until the last time that I read this book that I noticed or recognized that Dean Thomas played like a fairly substantial role in the book, but then 
was written out of the movie. I'd just like forgotten that he was in it at all because I watched the movie and was like, nope, nothing wrong here. <laughs> um, this all looks like exactly what things should look like. Yeah. <laughs> like just I ordinary people doing just, their normal stuff. <laughs> no, nothing conspicuously absent at all. I guess. So yeah. I, I guess what I'm saying is that I think that it says a lot that we can be watching a movie where it's just like a bunch of white people who are having a big fight and not be like, there are, there are important characters who yeah. are missing from this. I just think that that's super fucked up. Yeah. Again, when we're talking about adaptation, we're recognizing that there's no obligation of the film to be faithful to the text in any particular way, but that the choices that are made during the process of adaptation are always interesting and indicative. And when we think about whose stories are taken out of the film, mm -hmm. we think about the absence of Dean Thomas. Another really conspicuous one is um, the disappearance of Creature's backstory, mm -hmm. um, which, you know, while we were troubled by the conclusion of that, which is that Harry becomes a good master and Creature becomes a happy, obedient slave, I think nonetheless that actual backstory where we saw the way that some wizards treat mm -hmm. their house elves and the sort of reality of that violence and the reality of the life that creature has lived was a really powerful and important story to sort of counterbalance the like, oh, before Voldemort, everything was fine. We were a happy multicultural paradise. Mm -hmm. It was like, no, you absolutely were not. Mm -hmm. And another version of that that we see um, elided is much of Lupin's storyline. Mm -hmm. You know, Lupin's desperation to get out of the life that he has made himself and to go and join Harry and Ron and Hermione because he feels not accepted as a werewolf in society is just like glossed over. Mm -hmm. He appears to be perfectly happy with Tonks and Bill, who is like werewolf ish, mm -hmm. it's just like this wacky, like, well, well, I like mistakes rare now. I dum 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 dum. <laughs> <laughs> so like a lot of yeah. that, a lot of the forms of terror and violence that that befall these characters who don't fit into wizarding society pre-Voldemort's rise mm -hmm. have disappeared in a way that I think makes it a bit too easy to read wizarding society pre-Voldemort as being happy and mm -hmm. good yeah. for everyone. Yeah, It so like remember when we were watching The Lord of the Rings during our Christmas special? That's I don't remember. Our holiday special. It's a bit it's a a bit of a blur to be <laughs> honest. <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about. We had joked during that episode about how elves are metaphors for women <laughs> because there are no women. And I think what's happening is something very similar where in these movies white people become metaphors for yes. marginalized subjects. Yeah. And so it's like you can't just take you can't just take people with all the privilege and then like divide their experiences up in such a way that some of their privilege is meant to like signify the the lack of privilege of of <laughs> of oppressed and and marginalized subjects. While a lot of beloved characters are either written out or have their roles reduced, we have two beloved characters who I would argue the two beloved characters who die in this movie. I mean, Moody dies too, but I still like. It's kind of just can't, just can't. <laughs> sorry, sorry, it doesn't do much for me. Well, also, they've only known the real Moody 
for what a, a summer or so <laughs> i mean he was a secret murderer who was wearing moody's face that yeah. entire year yeah exactly with both dobby and hedwig it really struck me that both of them are given i would argue more heroic deaths mm-hmm. in the movie than they yeah. have in the book with hedwig we have the difference between in the book she is in the cage crammed between harry's knees and killed by accident and killed by accident yeah. whereas in the movie she's being a hero yeah. yeah she is attempting to save harry and that's why she dies no no which is like as far as changes go I think that that was a really wonderful change. Like I know that I know that David Yates couldn't be like take that rolling Hedwig's alive. Hedwig lives. I think that giving her um giving her a death in which she has some kind of agency is just it just makes me feel a little bit better about about the loss of Hedwig. And the thing about Dobby's death is that his heroism in the book is so like he is a hero but so much of it is subtext because he is so afraid of being back in his former master's manner where he was so badly so badly abused whereas here we actually get to have dobby you could have killed me dobby never meant to kill he's a little bit funny dobby only meant to maim or seriously injure so he does he has that moment where he declares himself to be a free elf, which was really beautiful. How dare you defy your masters? Dobby has no master. Dobby is a free elf. And Dobby has come to save Harry Potter and his friends. That's when I started crying. But the, the moment that really, really struck me is that he gets some dying words in Harry's arms. Harry Potter that aren't just saying Harry Potter, where he says that it's a beautiful place to be with friends. (laughs) Hold on. Hold on. Just hold on, okay? We'll we'll fix you. Hermione, have something in your bag. Hermione. Hermione. Help me! Such a beautiful place. To be with friends. Dobby is happy to be with his friend. Harry Potter. Which murdered me right in the feelings. But also, I just thought it's such a little moment, but to have Dobby refer to all of them as his friends is this real reminder of how, like, this is ultimately a series about friendship. And it's about friendship as, like, a highly politicized relationship that is about equality. Mm-hmm. And that is, like, a relationship that is not structured by hierarchies or relations of obligation or or senses of, you know shared race or ethnicity right that like friendship is friendship is always politically charged when friendship is about so sort of these powerful solidarities across 
boundaries of difference. Mm -hmm. And so to have Dobby in that moment of his death say, you know, what it means for him to be there with his friends, I thought was, was at once, like, just made me weep. But also, I thought set up totalitarianism or fascism versus friendship mm. as a really interesting sort of paired set of terms mm-hmm. yeah 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 so it's not fascism versus democracy but fascism versus community yeah which is i think a much more interesting and um uh, conflicting set of values because democracy is very totalitarian <laughs> from time to time what kind of ghost do you want to be like a cool old-timey ghost who stands at the top of a staircase at midnight or like a transparent sheet ghost that frightens a large cartoon dog you know what we can figure this out in the sorting ceremony And while we're at it, we can talk about casting, performances, and whether or not you ever think about the possibility of becoming a ghost when you're choosing your outfit for the day. Hey, Neil, why don't you tell us what you were saying about good acting before? Oh, um, yeah, I was saying that uh, I am not an actor and I don't actually know a lot about acting. So when I'm watching movies and I'm thinking, is someone a good actor or not? Um, one thing that I do is I think about, is there ever a moment where the character is lying or dissembling or pretending to do something? Because I think you have to be quite a good actor to be able to plausibly lie or hide your feelings while to the audience, it is both plausible that you have successfully deceived the other characters, but to the audience, your actual feelings or the truth of the matter is clear. So I think if you can tell a character is lying, I think you're probably looking at a fairly good actor, if it's also plausible. And there's a great example of that in this movie. Yeah, so coming off um, the last book episode, in which I was pretty hard on Snape, I was looking for, like, how is it that Alan Rickman makes Snape so much more sympathetic as a character? And I was so struck by him in the scene where he's watching what Voldemort is doing, where he's watching Charity Burbage get killed. Severus, Severus, please. My friends. And his face is like unmoving and neutral the entire time. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, I am still fully convinced of his horror. Like, I can see him looking at her, and I believe that what is happening to him is watching a coworker die and knowing there's nothing he can do about it and knowing that it is, like, tearing him apart, but that he has, like, this larger purpose. And I, and I can see all that in him. Mm-hmm. Like, he convinces me. Alan Rickman's face convinces me of the horror and tragedy of that scene and the horror of what Snape has undertaken um, and the personal losses that are involved in the work that he has done in a way that the book did not convince me. Mm -hmm. The book didn't convince me that Snape was genuinely horrified. I actually came out of the last book kind of thinking that like Snape probably would have just been a death eater Mm -hmm. were it not for Lily. But Alan Rickman's Snape would not be. Alan Rickman's Snape is horrified by what's happening and was friends with the teachers at Hogwarts 
and is sacrificing those relationships. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's so incredible to see Alan Rickman's performance alongside Tom Felton and Jason Isaacs because we see Tom Felton as Draco just looking like horrified and disgusted, right? Like he looks like he has just seen war and doesn't want to go back but can't leave. Whereas Jason Isaacs on the other side is looking real rough so rough but is like, like only concerned about his self hmm? what about you Lucius my lord. my lord I require your Do I detect Elm? Yes, my lord. And the call. <clears throat> Dragon Heartstring. Dragon Heartstring. So if you sort of like put Alan Rickman as Snape in between these other two, you have on the one extreme, like disgust and horror at what the world has become and your complicity in it. And then at the other hand, you have disgust and horror at your own personal lot in life. Whereas Alan Rickman, you have just stone cold unreadable, Mm -hmm. except for the eyes. And it's amazing because they're all doing fantastic work. But obviously, Alan Rickman wins the wins the prize for, you know. Greatest secret keeper of all time. You were going to tell us a bit about the uh, panel you saw of Jason Isaacs and Tom Felton at the Calgary Fan Expo. Yeah. This is a total diversion because they didn't really talk about um, the last movie. Although Jason Isaacs did refer to, um, to, to Tom Felton, or rather to Draco as being the hero. And he was saying to Tom Felton, like, you know, you are the only one who changes. Whereas all, like all the other kids, like they, they remain the same. And while I think that that's true in intent, I don't think that that's actually how the movie play. I mean, we haven't seen the last movie, so maybe I'll be wrong. And Draco mm-hmm. Malfoy will like foist his wand and like change, but I don't. Yeah. I think actually Neville would be the hero according to that equation. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> God. Okay, so what I wanted I wanted to tell you guys very briefly about the stories of both of their casting calls and how they both got these got the job. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. So. Tom Felton's story is that he was in line and he at this time, I think still hasn't read the books, but at the time had never read any of the books. I might be getting this a little bit wrong. Don't worry about it. He was <laughs> he was chatting with one of like one or two of the other kids who were in line waiting to be cast. And he's thinking like, I've never read these books. I don't know how to like convince them that I'll be the right kid for the job but he hears them talking about gringotts or something like one of the kids is like what are you excited to see i'm excited to see gringotts and he was like oh okay yeah gringotts yeah so then when the casting director was asking him about like what his favorite magical creature was or something like that he was like oh the gringotts i'm really excited to see the gringotts anyway so like that i'm getting it a little bit wrong but the point is that he is convinced that the casting director was like i'm gonna give the job to this lying little prat 
That's amazing. <laughs> so then Jason Isaacs is uh, is auditioning. He initially wanted to audition for the role of Lockhart. Ooh. Yeah. And he was really, really pissed and offended that he did not get the job of playing Lockhart. And his agent was like, look, will you just audition for this other role? And he, like, didn't know anything about this other character. So he just goes in. And the way that he tells the story is that he probably delivered his lines in just the most, like, sneering of ways. Because he was like, this is so beneath me. And that's why he got the job. (laughs) That's amazing that both of their stories eventually come down to, so I was an asshole in real life. casting director was like huh you're an asshole (laughs) that is really great so there's i think a couple of other people we want to talk about in that in that voldemort scene and one of them is um ray fines as voldemort who neil described as uh just voldemorting around you wanna you wanna tell us more what you mean by that neil i think that's pretty (laughs) self-explanatory Uh, no, I, I wanted to talk about the fact that I, this is the first time that we see Voldemort uh, in power, and he's essentially having a board meeting of some kind. <laughs> like a true politician, you will, I think, prove most useful, Pius. Uh, with all of his cronies, who are obviously terrified that they will be murdered in any moment, with good reason. Mm-hmm. But uh, I, I just uh, was thinking about how previously Voldemort in the movies has gone from being uh, a sort of abstract face and a whispering voice uh to that strange uh fetus-like being that he was for a while to um a sort of fairly limited uh moving kind of character and now i i think the first scene of this movie is really interesting because you see him i i don't i don't know what other way to put it but he's sort of at the height of his powers he's Mm -hmm. he's fully in power and i think it's very interesting to me because it seems to me that Fine's performance plays the character as that kind of connoisseur-like villain. When when he uh, breaks um, uh, Lucius Malfoy's wand and he sort of has a brief aside where he, uh, in a sort of Hannibal Lecter-esque tone, sort of... Dragon Heartstring. Dragon Heartstring appreciates the wand and what it's made of though he obviously malfoy is terrified and to be really honest i was thinking that fine's performance as voldemort is strangely effeminate Mm. he has that he has a voice and a sort of way of moving and a way of speaking that i think is interesting so on the one hand i think it's interesting that he performs a kind of connoisseurship or a sort of cultured and I also think it's interesting that he strikes me as somewhat effeminate, which I don't mean in a pejorative sense. I think mm-hmm. that he is performing a kind of villainy that is interesting. I mean, I think that's in the books because Tom Riddle, his main characteristic is being beautiful and charming. So I think there's already a sort of legibility of him as being a sort of d- dandy figure. Mm-hmm. But what this reminded me of is I just finished um, reading... Lindy West's memoir, Shrill, which everybody required reading. It's absolutely incredible. But there's this there's this footnote that she has um, where she's talking about Disney movies and she refers to the snake in Robin Hood as being gay and then decides that that is potentially problematic and so texts her friend Guy Branham, who is a comedy writer and cultural commentator on the fantastic podcast Pop Rocket mm-hmm. um, and also a very critically aware and smart gay man. Um, and so she texts him to be like, is this okay for me to refer to this snake as 
gay Sir Hiss is his name. Sir yeah. Sir um, and then they have this conversation, which she just includes the back and forth as a footnote, in which Guy Branham has the following to say about the gay male villain character. Um, he says, Disney only uses character tropes we've seen before. We gays are unnatural and preoccupied with power. A common theme here is conniving outsiders trying to steal the game, manipulate the system to gain power slash protection, the non-noble way. Grima Wormtongue, all Jews, gays, women who gossip or do anything but be pretty and passive. That struck me as being exactly what we're seeing in Voldemort, which is the sort of queer coded outsider character who is striving to seize power from like the heteronormative center through these aberrant behaviors and so his coding as effeminate i actually think falls really well into this this history of tropes you know what is so exciting about that is so we talked similarly about lucius as as an effeminate villain Mm -hmm. back when we very inexpertly talked about the second movie. The bow in his hair. The bow in his hair. It is so interesting to me that Lucius's fall from grace has coincided with uh, kind of hyper rugged masculinity. He still has long hair, but it's like unkempt. He's got bristly 13 o'clock shadow. His voice is very like gruff and low and he's like probably drunk. <laughs> he, he's like smellier smell. yeah exactly yeah i love that both of our we're talking about heterosexual masculinity we're like he's dirty and smelly and probably drunk sorry neil you know just because i showed up dirty and smelly and drunk to this podcast recording that's no reason to single me out god neil your facial hair is just so long i'm leaving to punch a bear in the woods <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you're right. You're right. That as we see him fall out of that sort of insider circle, he starts to be coded as less and less effeminate and more and more sort of masculine. So I'm, I'm just curious then, what about the obsession with eugenics? I mean, he's he, Voldemort immediately brings up uh, muggle studies by raising this prospect of, of disgusting uh, intercourse between muggles and, uh, and magic users. I'm I'm just really curious about what what do we make of those things coming together? I don't think they're at odds. I think that there is a lot of homosociality coded into Nazi imagery. The coding of Voldemort's queerness and his disgust with breeding with muggles also sort of points towards the way that misogyny and coding of queerness often overlap in popular Mm -hmm. culture as well. That it's like, those people are disgusting. The idea of sex with those people is disgusting versus the sort of image of a a racially pure sexuality, which often is figured through the image of two white men. Yeah. Yeah, The, the overlaps, the intersections of like queerness and white supremacy and misogyny are really, really complicated, particularly in like 20th century fascist iconography. I don't think I'm, I'm, equipped to unpack those but let's just say this listeners i can recommend you some reading if you want to know more but i i was thinking about uh the when when voldemort um says uh talking about charity burbage when he says that she she wants us to mate with with muggles i think Mm -hmm. it's essentially impossible to imagine voldemort reproducing oh yeah essentially impossible yeah. 
I'm suddenly very interested in the notion or in this in the type of villain that Voldemort is compared to other types of like strong male villains who or instead of eschewing sexuality and reducing it to the concept of breeding and mating altogether, um, take many wives and mm. have many children. Like I think that he is, and I, again, of course, this uh, is complemented by his effeminacy and queerness as a character, but it is a really interesting choice to make him that kind of villain and not the kind of sexual predator for whom all women are potential non-consenting wives you know yes yeah and i mean we see the conflation of of like bad guys and sexual predation in other characters right mm-hmm. it's fenrir gray back in the books it's random dandy man random dandy man with yeah. a scarf in the movie yeah. um but we still we still see that presented to us as a possibility mm-hmm. but one that is like so clearly not the case the closest voldemort has to any kind of intimate relationship is the relationship he has with his snake which is an interesting figure as well because the snake because <laughs> the snake is a super phallic image mm-hmm. but the snake is also a female snake mm-hmm. and that's all pretty interesting but that's that's his intimate relationship is with his snake <laughs> so we got um, our listener Lily actually tweeted at us and she said, read diversity. My favorite thing in the films is that all the Weasleys have different accents and that's totally normal. She said, um, compare the twins to Ron next time you watch. They are so Midlands, which is so funny to me because I was like, oh, that does not mean anything, <laughs> but is like an amazingly British sounding burn. Like, oh my God, their accent is so Midlands. Like, I don't know what that means. But so that's, you know, hey, British listeners, because I know we have a couple. We can't hear the difference between your accents. They don't mean anything to us. No. Like, I can tell when somebody's being over the top Cockney versus like um, an RP accent, like a, a BBC British accent. Like, I can tell if you're really heavy handedly class coding British accents, I can hear that. But, like, uh, the Weasleys all have accents from different regions? Never noticed. Nothing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I definitely never noticed until you until you told me about it. And then when I was watching, I was like, I guess Bill has a kind of posh accent. But, like, we've never met him before. So, like, and he's been working with goblins. So, you know, maybe yeah. he's had to class himself up a bit, sound more posh than... Yeah. The only accent... So, I was listening for accents. And then... <laughs> point this is really gonna give away how shitty i am at this so um uh reese Fons, is that how you say his name plays xenophilius lovegood and at one point like halfway through the movie i was like well his accent's kind of different right and neil was like yeah he's welsh <laughs> i was like oh yeah that's a different place entirely and <laughs> like a different language whoops <laughs> so let's talk about why xenophilius lovegood is welsh I mean, I thought colonization was supposed to just, like, make us all the same. I don't understand why there are differences. I mean, I I, I come up against the same problem here that we have with the accents. I, I don't actually know what stereotypes there are of Welsh people. I don't know what I'm supposed to think when I hear a Welsh accent. But, um, I, I mean, I don't know what it means. Are, are Welsh people supposed to be weird wackos? Is that why Lovegood would be? I think maybe that Welshness might signify as a sort of kind of otherness because 
there is the Welsh language, which is a different language. I encourage listeners to laugh at our ignorance. <laughs> uh, of the, it's just terrible. Uh, we're, we're just, we're just yeah. colonials. We don't know. Yeah. We just don't know. Yeah. I, I, I can't hear the accents. Okay, are we ready to talk about our, our three heroes? Mm-hmm. Okay, the first thing I want to talk about is that when Ron confronts Harry as he's trying to sneak off at the very, um, beginning. At the very beginning, right after they've arrived at the borough, mm-hmm. uh, they're standing in this field talking and Ron's like, you can't leave without me. And Marcel was like, oh my God, it's just like Frodo and Samwise Ganji. Nobody else is going to die. Not for me. You may be the chosen one, mate. This is a whole lot bigger than that. It's always been bigger than that. Come with me. I'll leave Hermione. You're mad. We wouldn't last two days without her. Don't tell her I said that. Besides, you've still got the trace on you. You've still got the wedding. I don't care about a wedding. I'm sorry, no matter whose it is, I have to start finding these Horcruxes. They're our only chance to beat him, and the longer we stay here, the stronger he gets. Tonight's not the night, mate. We're only be doing him a favour. And I was like, oh, wow, think about how much better that story would have gone for them if they had also brought along a really competent woman who packed well. Mm-hmm. Like, if you choose as your third traveling companion, super competent woman with like a bag full of practical objects and also really great strategies for self-care mm-hmm. and for like care work for the people she's traveling with, as opposed to sociopathic goblin man. <laughs> Just Frodo and Sam chose to travel with, and it all ended a lot worse. I like it didn't occur to me to think of Gollum first. I was thinking instead of one competent woman, they had to bring along seven other somewhat competent men. That's clearly an intertext here, which it's very obvious. And also, I did not think about it while reading the book, but it is very obvious, which is the image of. Um, Frodo with the ring on a chain around his neck, slowly driving him insane. It's exactly what the locket is doing, except that Frodo has to carry that burden himself. Nobody else can carry it. Nobody else can help him. So he just has to go crazier and crazier the longer he wears it. Whereas Ron and Harry and Hermione can take turns. And that's, like, that's a pretty powerful retelling of that story. Well, like, the ultimate goddamn lesson of this book series is that you don't have to do anything alone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Community wow. versus totalitarianism. Yes! Oh, yay! Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Listeners, this is magic to behold. It is a magic beyond words. So, let's talk a little about bit about Hermione and self-care we had uh or no I think we just asked in the last episode why it might be that the only spell that Hermione is bad at is expecto patronum and you I think Marcel you suggested in your answer that it's imposter syndrome Mm -hmm. um and then a listener suggested that it might sort of more generally be that Hermione has the sort of anxiety and depression that often accompanies being a sort of outsider figure in a highly 
competitive environment. So if we do read Hermione, for example, as black or Jewish, which a lot of readers do, mm -hmm. then it makes sense for Hermione to be a character who has depression and anxiety mm -hmm. because those are those are often experiences that accompany, you know, being systemically marginalized um, and constantly feeling like you don't fit into an environment. Mm -hmm. But the flip side of that is that somebody with a lifetime of depression and anxiety often also has a really great set of self-care tactics. Mm -hmm. And we see how good Hermione is at that stuff really viscerally in this movie um, because she is the one who's like, oh, you've been wearing the locket too long. You need to stop. Mm -hmm. She knows when she's been wearing it too long and needs to stop. Like she is better at managing all of these relationships and at managing these high stress situations, um, which suggests to me, not just a sort of, you know, essentialized, like, oh, women are better at care work than men are. But also, if you have had to do this work for yourself for a long time, you're just better at it in general. So let's talk about the interactions between these three characters, because I'd say this is the most both convincing and endearing I have found their friendship in any of the movies so far. I mean, I think largely it's because these child actors have become quite competent adult actors. Mm -hmm. They're, and that's not marred by weird teen sex comedy as it was in the last movie. <laughs> they just are really convincing. I'd say that, like, I think maybe I'm the least convinced by Daniel Radcliffe most of, mm -hmm. like, more often than by ron and hermione but that it doesn't it's yeah. it doesn't happen super often i think that they've all like become really impressive actors mm -hmm. i think actually one of the things that i couldn't help but notice in this viewing of the movie is how much daniel radcliffe's cadence reminds me of Jon snow um and it just like kept popping out just in the the way that he would like phrase things imagine if what's his face modeled his performance of Jon snow after Daniel Radcliffe because he understood Jon Snow to be like a Harry Potter figure. Oh. Is this a clue as to the future of Witch Please? <laughs> no. no. Oh, God, no. Oh, well, no. That's, that's disappointing. <laughs> oh, anyway. So, yeah, I agree. I think that they've all gotten better as actors. The scenes where it's just the three of them together, there's so many great ones. And uh, I would like to register my visceral discomfort with how convincing Ron's sexual attraction to Hermione is. Mm -hmm. That scene where they're at the piano together. A bit gentle. And Hermione is trying to show him how to play the song and she starts to play it for him and he's just staring at her. And I was like, this, oh, this is too much. This is too much because he's just staring at her and it was like, ah, no, he wants to fuck her. It only grossed me out because like, they are still children in my mind. Yeah. And it's gross, gross teen sex. But like, incredibly in contrast, we have the zero chemistry between Harry and Ginny at the beginning, right? Where she comes in almost naked and is like, yeah. could you put my clothes on for me? And he's like, sure. And then they like kiss in this weird way where their like heads are attached, oh. but they aren't. I don't, it's, it was bad. Oh my that God. It was bad. Yeah. And you have like, you always have to remember that was the best take that they got. <gasps> hmm. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. 
Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The other scene that I was really, really convinced by was um, the Harry and Hermione dancing together scene, which could have been really awkward or weird or cheesy Mm -hmm. or dumb, but I actually found really, really touching. Mm -hmm. Um, And I thought, as you pointed out at the time, Marcel, like that's compressing what in the book is a lot of time of Harry and Hermione getting to be friends Mm -hmm. and us getting to see that there is nothing sexual about their friendship, that it really just is a lovely friendship and that that whole narrative is just compressed into that scene of them dancing to a Nick Cave song. And it's, it's really beautifully done. Yeah, I love that scene. I know a lot of people either use that scene for uh, uh, gifts for Harry Hermione shipping, or they just hate the scene, which is which is unfortunate. I it it moves me in my feeling places, which are most often cold and frosty. Neil, talk to us about friendship. Yeah, uh, no, I, I think it's I think it's maybe another thing to think about as an acting challenge that actually it's very hard to perform friendships turning into something else or failing to turn romantic. I think I think it's actually quite difficult. And I, I think with these movies, they really lucked out with those kids. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, I I like that scene too. I absolutely read that entire Nick Cave dance as. Uh, a narrative of them not becoming romantic Mm -hmm. and i i i found that compelling and i don't think that's easy at all Mm -hmm. to show yeah Yeah. i mean you're working against so many lazy commonplace assumptions about compulsory heterosexuality Mm -hmm. and the way that that codes men and women's relationships as always sexually charged Mm -hmm. so actually you have a lot of work to do in that scene Mm -hmm. um and i think that they do the work really really well of showing that it is possible for them to have a caring loving relationship with each other that isn't about wanting to fuck which then makes that scene when ron comes back i think easier to read Mm -hmm. as a like oh this is just voldemort because Mm -hmm. there is not like they do not want to have sex with each other Ooh, I know it's really going to up our spooky quotient and help us get our undead business done. Some good spooky effects. A well-timed chain rattle. Some blood dripping from the walls. Totally inexplicable green slime. You know what? Let's head to Madame Malkin's props for all occasions and we can talk all about the material production of spookiness. And I and I guess also this movie. 
<laughs> so at one point during our watching of this movie, our uh, our silent partner, Claire, commented that she really enjoyed the, uh, the palette. palette. Yes, that she really enjoyed the palette of this movie. Um, and after I forced her to explain what she meant by that, she was like, oh, well, you know, it's sort of like sepia. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, that is really interesting. The times where we are at the burrow... And most of the time that we are in the wilderness is very sepia toned mm-hmm. in this way that I think conjures a sort of nostalgic feel. The times, on the other hand, I mean, the times when we are at the ministry or um, at Malfoy Manor, it is literally so dark we could barely see it mm-hmm. on the screen. It is so dark. And then whenever we're in the muggle world, like when they are at the coffee shop in the beginning and later on when they're in that trailer park, everything is suddenly like super harsh and bright and saturated mm-hmm. and grim. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, I mean, we've talked before about how much these movies like to use different color palettes to like change tones and mm-hmm. remind us where we are and what's going on. But it also got me to thinking about the way that the muggle world, again, about the way that the muggle world is represented in these movies more so than in the books. Mm. The movies really make a point of telling us that the wizarding world is magical and wonderful and the muggle world is bleak. It was sort of tweaking in my brain with noticing recently somebody on Twitter making a sort of casually derisive like, oh, typical muggles, am I right? <laughs> Which is a thing I've noticed Harry Potter fans do in general. Um, They use the term muggle derisively to refer to people who are not also Harry Potter fans and who don't get the magic of the Harry Potter world. And I was like, oh, well, that's missing the point entirely of these texts. But I think that it is also a form of point missing that is encouraged by the aesthetics of the movie. That might account for where some of that sentiment in the Harry Potter fan community comes from Mm -hmm. is the way that the muggle world is made so ugly in these movies Mm -hmm. when compared to the wizarding world, which is so lovely, but lovely in a very Mm -hmm. sort of pre-modern nostalgia way, which is ironically itself a fairly conservative gesture, Mm -hmm. right? Nostalgia for the pre-modern, but might also fit nicely into our sort of community versus fascism Mm -hmm. thing, right? Which is like one of the aspects uh, that we affiliate with pre-modernity is stronger community focus Mm -hmm. whereas the modern is about like these huge depersonalized dehumanizing urban centers Mm -hmm. well i think one of the other things that um maybe fits in with that is the fact that all of these places where our trio are traveling are either completely devoid of people Mm -hmm. and i and i i know that they're supposed to be hiding out so it makes sense that they're traveling places that don't have any people around but it's like these huge sweeping empty landscapes contrasted with the like really crushing sense of being surrounded by muggles when they are otherwise in the muggle world right you have these like nostalgic trips through an empty england (laughs) or you are being swarmed by muggles (laughs) so the subtext of that is a Voldemortian way to think about the world for sure way to go david yates for (laughs) just reiterating voldemort's racism okay let's talk about print culture in this movie 
Let's talk about, let's start off by talking about the totally different aesthetic choice that they made for the ministry anti-muggle pamphlets. No simpering rose, but... Uh, rather, it's a sort of abstract, futurist, uh, very modern-looking, mm-hmm. uh, very Soviet-looking, in fact, in a way that I don't think really anything else in the series looks that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, really interesting. Especially because we do see other uh, wizarding newspapers and such, and they look very old style. So the Soviet propaganda posters are really interesting in comparison to the font and the typeface that we normally see with the Daily Prophet or with the school books that we've seen in the Mm -hmm. past, which have a very sort of like old, old timey nostalgic feel to them. Yeah. So it's, it's so interesting that they would make that move from like a pre-modern printing press into capital M modern, Mm -hmm. like totalitarian soviet propaganda you know we were neil you were alluding to the um the way that those totalitarian themes are really being amped up for us aesthetically in this movie and the pamphlets the choice of making those pamphlets look so soviet is one real way of doing that um did you notice any others yes (laughs) well uh, there's the statue that they've installed in the center of the ministry of magic now which is very prominent uh, during the speech about the uh, ministry being restored to its greatness, uh, quote unquote, um, a statue that seems like it literally represents the concept of brutalism. I, I think it's a column with muggles being crushed mm-hmm. underneath it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so I mean, that's tremendously unsubtle, but that's very on point to the kind of imagery that does feel like that kind of brutalist um which I think, I don't know if I can define brutalist architecture exactly, but as I understand it, the point is to, yeah, it's a lot of concrete and the point is to minimize the sort of individual person or idiosyncrasies mm-hmm. of, of the group of people. That's a really smart point because in the books, this statue is a male and female wizard mm-hmm. standing together, There's, crushing, sitting, sitting or something. I think you're right. Mm-hmm. Crushing muggles beneath them and so to replace that with this brutalist architecture which again does sort of harken to the soviet era uh the concrete the lack of iconography of a person literally crushing the images of people beneath it is also i think it seems to be a deliberate aesthetic choice in the film you know okay so i'm so we're looking at an at a picture of the statue that they use and one thing that I can't help but notice is the fact that they in the movies, they just like abandon the notion of robes, right? So witches and wizards don't really dress like weirdos mm-hmm. when they are trying to dress like muggles. There's like very little difference between muggle dress and witch and wizard dress. So I'm looking at these muggles and there's nothing about the representation of the bodies underneath that concrete slab that would indicate their non-magicness except for the lack of wands well but that's also really interesting when we then think about how in this world of wanting to differentiate between muggles or muggle-borns and pure bloods that the wand becomes so central because it is the only way Mm -hmm. to differentiate and then in the books we get the wandless Mm -hmm. and that that is really conspicuous in the statue that the only way you can tell that these people being crushed 
are those who deserve to be crushed Mm -hmm. is the absence of wants. Right. And the only um, substantial question that we get during the um, interrogation of Mrs. Cattermole is Dolores Umbridge asking her, Mary Elizabeth Cattermole, a wand was taken from you upon your arrival at the ministry today, Mrs. Cattermole. Is this that wand? From which witch? Would you please tell the court from which witch or wizard you took? Let's talk about magic. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I noticed these two these two really interesting and remarkably similar shots in this movie. So the first one is the one where um, everybody is, has taken the polyjuice potion and is transforming into Harry. And the second one is the one where they're out in the woods. Um, and then some snatchers come across them. Not the scene where they're caught, but the scene where they're mm-hmm. being kept out by Hermione's magic, by the enchant enchantments enchantments and in both of those scenes the distinction between appearance and reality that is produced by magic is represented for us by the device of like a continuing circular camera shot Mm -hmm. that like starts on people moves away from them and comes back and something has changed Mm -hmm. right so in the first one it's like we see the characters sort of starting to transform and then the camera moves away to show Harry's reaction. And then it comes back in the same shot and everybody looks like Harry. Mm-hmm. And then the other one, it's like from Hermione's perspective, looking at the snatcher. And then the camera pans away and it switches to his perspective. Mm-hmm. And you can see that from his perspective, she's not there. Mm-hmm. And then it switches back to her perspective and you can see him again. What's that? And, you know, I noticed that both with that and also when they go through the protective enchantments into the safe house, the the burrow, Mm -hmm. there's a kind of like sort of sound and like the the image ripples a little bit. And I think that that is such a fascinating choice to represent the entering into or passing through a magical barrier as though the camera itself has passed through that magical barrier. Mm -hmm. It's such a like... It's such an effective, but perhaps not necessary addition, but like really does give you the viewer the impression that you are also passing through that magical barrier. Yeah, I just like the way that like it's the continual camera shot that Mm -hmm. that particularly produces that feeling of like how two different things can be the case at the same time Mm -hmm. that like via magic, these people can both be Harry and not Harry at the same time. Mm-hmm. Hermione can both be there and not there at the same time. Mm-hmm. And that the continuity of the shot is the thing that lets us realize that it's not, it's not like, oh, they were themselves and now they're Harry. She was there and now she's not. Mm-hmm. It's like, those are simultaneous realities. There was another aesthetic that you, uh, that you had noticed, Neil. Yeah, it was the the various scenes in this movie that seem to be exploiting the idea of it being shown in 3D. There are many scenes, I think, beginning with uh, Nagini essentially lunging at the camera at the very beginning, uh, that seem to be designed for 3D. They mm-hmm. seem to be designed for an effect of something coming towards you, the audience. Uh, and... Yeah, Dumbledore's ghost is like that too. And I I think that's, uh, it's just interesting because it maybe says something about the changing techniques in film from the beginning of this series to the end, Mm -hmm. that that becomes a really 
standard device in this movie essentially mm-hmm. and and i think it's also interesting that it is as far as i can remember it's always something magical that's sort of being thrown at the camera or that mm-hmm. the camera is lunging towards or mm-hmm. something like that which is is interesting i mean it, it makes perfect sense because essentially if you think of 3d as an outgrowth of special effects then yeah. which i think is the right way to think about it and that just becomes another device that is in the filmmaker's bag of tricks when they are trying to differentiate between the mundane and the magical yeah and I, I was just about to say that i don't i don't didn't note the movie doing anything extremely interesting with 3d except for the deathly hallows story which is actually a very it's not surreal but it uses the medium of animation to mm-hmm. sort of break down some of the spatial relationships that we might have thought of and i actually think in 3d that would look really really interesting it's already a very striking sequence hmm. so i was noticing the timing of where we were at when we got to xenophilius lovegood's house and it was quite close to the end of the movie and and then there's all of a sudden the introduction of like a mini movie within the movie. Mm-hmm. And I just remember being really surprised that I don't know why I found this surprising because like obviously they have to put all of these significant plot points in the in an appropriate order in the movie. So I don't know why I found it surprising. And yet it did. It It seemed surprising to me that so close to the end of the movie, they would introduce a mini movie. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's because I am used to seeing many movies like that as prologues in movies, Mm -hmm. that that is usually where they sit, is like a sort of, you know, since the dawn of time, a movie that did a really great job of that same device was on Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yes. Opens with this beautiful puppet show. That was the best part of that movie. It was definitely the best part (laughs) of that movie. And it's this, yeah, it's this gorgeous puppet show, like, uh like paper puppets, two-dimensional paper puppets, but in a three-dimensional space, um, in a two-dimensional medium. Wow, space is weird. Yeah, representing this history of the zombie wars in England. Um, but again, yeah, that's those things come at the beginning of movies. Mm-hmm. They don't come at the end of movies. Mm-hmm. And so it does feel, it feels really interesting, but I think in a way that is probably encouraging us to like, not treat this as an aside, but to realize like that this is a big revelation mm-hmm. and that this is going to be really important and we need to mm. pay attention to it because it does stand out. It does yeah. feel weird. There's one other really significant representation of magic that we wanted mm. to talk about in this movie, which is the scene where Ron destroys the Horcrux mm-hmm. and uh, when they open it, all of this crazy Voldemort magic pours out and there's all kinds of stuff there's spiders and skulls and sexy naked teens yeah so okay I remember (laughs) when I saw this movie I saw it in theaters with our erstwhile tech support Trevor Chow Fraser and our friend Rebecca not our friend Rebecca Blakey sorry another I know several Jews named Rebecca and I remember very distinctly when that weird CGI Harry Hermione's naked smoke body started like making out and getting it on you are nothing 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 compared to him I remember Rebecca and her sister laughing out loud at how ridiculous that was And at the time, I remember being like, what a stupid effect. 
Except that afterwards, so something that happens when Trevor and I see movies together is that often we will talk about the movies afterwards. That's weird. Does that sound crazy to you? You're not supposed to do that. And we were sort of chatting about it and about like how weird and gross that CGI was, but also how like perfectly in keeping with Voldemort's understanding of sexuality that image was. Mm -hmm. Like Voldemort is someone who obviously thinks that sexuality is repugnant because of the way he talks about it. And so this like magical representation of it is like really viscerally gross. And the weird fucked up thing that's happening to Harry and Hermione's faces is remarkably similar to the description we get of like Tom Riddle gradually turning into Voldemort, which is that his features start to like melt like wax and he becomes paler and waxier until he becomes this like essentially featureless golem creature. But that's also what they look like. Like they are made out of wax and all of their features are sort of like slightly melted and weird. Like Voldemort only has a very vague sense of what humans look like. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. At least the way that I read this is not Voldemort being like, I am actively doing this. It's like the nature of the magic is that it is taking Ron's deepest fears and like recasting them through the lens of Voldemort's magic. Right. So like representing them back to him as produced by Voldemort's magic. So it's Mm -hmm. like this is what the lens of Voldemort reproduces the world as. Right. Is this sort of ugliness and yeah. and this sort of contorted version of both what human bodies look like and what human relationships look like. Another really different, fascinating way of trying to show us what Voldemort's magic is like is to actually show us how his magic contorts the very image of our protagonists. Mm-hmm. Lots of smart ways of getting at how magic works in this movie. Good job, David Yates. (laughs) Sometimes you get it right, David Yates, and sometimes you do not. Um, I I should have probably noted this when we were talking about the 3D effects, but I also feel that this movie, much more so than any of the previous movies in this segment, traffics in a lot of the devices and techniques of horror movies specifically. There are uh, jump scares, for example. Even the example of 3D coming directly at the camera, you could think of in those terms. The really oversaturated, dark looks. The scene where Batilda Bagshot uh, falls apart in front of us as Nagini exits her body is just horrifying. I think it's interesting that we see those things happen in a horror movie sense uh, because while I think those events are, are in the novel and it's not shocking that you do some version of them, it's a choice to film them using those techniques and not using fantasy techniques or oh the shaky cam yeah sorry uh, our erstwhile tech support trevor chow fraser hi how are you doing pointed out that this movie also uses shaky cam not from a camera within 
the movie, but just that our point of view suddenly becomes very shaky, particularly in the scene where Harry in disguise is in Dolores Umbridge's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, he's he's afraid and it's a disturbing space to be in. And suddenly the camera is very subjective and very shaky. It's not in a fixed kind of reassuring place. So that's, I, that would be another horror movie technique that I think is interesting. I think it's a really interesting choice, especially given this movie's political interests, to portray this as a horror movie at times. Basically that Voldemort's kind of horror totalitarian genre is encroaching on, you know, what has been a lighthearted fantasy at times, a a kid's movie. I mean, right when the movie started and we see the, is it the Warner Brothers logo is all like rusty and shitty. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like one minute into the movie, uh, as the title came up, uh, Neil quipped, Harry Potter and some real shit part one. Um, because the movie is saying to us aesthetically from moment one, shit has gotten dark. Mm-hmm. And you're right, that does extend to like the camera techniques themselves. It's like, this is basically a horror movie in some places. Mm-hmm. Um, especially when an old lady is a corpse puppet for a giant snake. <laughs> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's real upsetting. Um, well... Uh, who knows how the story's going to end? I hope everybody ends up okay and nobody that we love dies. Thanks so much for listening to episode 14 of Witch Please. Isn't it bonkers that we're only on episode 14, even though we have like a trillion episodes? It's almost as though numbers are arbitrary. <laughs> The rest of our arbitrarily numbered episodes are available on our website, ohwitchplease.ca, or you can listen on your podcasting app of choice. We do particularly love when people leave us iTunes reviews like Roosty4444 or Roosty Quadruple 4. They left us a review and now they're our favorite. Just saying. Other things that curry our favor include buying our merch, available at society6.com slash ohwitchplease. That's society number six dot com. That number six is not arbitrary. And then sending us pictures of yourselves enjoying that merch. Uterps Delight and the Kalesa did just that, so we think that they are pretty cool. Special thanks, as always, to our erstwhile tech support, Trevor Chow Fraser. Hi, how are you doing? Who is also celebrating his first Father's Day today by parenting while we podcast. What a guy. (laughs) And thanks to everyone who's been tweeting at us. Apologies if this isn't a quite exhaustive list. It's hard to cry your names from beyond the grave. Rowan Laurel. Ghosty Uke. Marim? Marim? Mr. M? Who knows? Lily Actually, No Added Sugar, Sparrow Swain, Vania Thimours, Kay Hazlitt, Izzy Burns, Sarah Martinez, M. Shamburge, Cat Snaps, Royson Farmer X, ABK Runs, EBL 1108, Anna Stellate, Claire Rousseau, Paper Trail Pod, Little Hedgehog, Sammy Haig, Wibbly Wobbly Han, Tina Brunskill, Proletarian Arts, Celia Rose, Ethia S, KRS Rambler, Lena Norms, CC Streeter, Emmy X, Peacock's Hat, Fierce Beanie, Ms. Megan, It's Just Roar, 
Miss RRG, Terry Lee McGarry, Karina Soros, Nemals Winter, Richard Bromhall, Vivigne, Ashley R. Guillory, Adele Maison, Liba Jen, Nefret 1884, Belinda McCart 10, Jasmine E.H., Amelia Rose 1225, Jenny B., Pig, Savannah Goyette, DeBeckel, Paula Gabrielis, K. Malosh 2, Krista Brittany, E. Stewart, You Call Me Clarence, Luce O.K., Pra Chris, Audrey Davis. This one, okay. I think this might be an internet thing because it's like heart seven I-N-E-S. Heart zines? Heart zines? Tweeted us and tell us how to say that. We're too old. Udbuk, Akiko Tree 8, Basil, Lizard Howard, Sarah Bibliophile, Howlter's Wi-Fi, Lizbiz Fizz, Lumos Lisa, The Drunken Menno, Laurel O'Neill, Allison Barron 12, Rachel Cold, Oz Charles, Hello Ashlyn, Debbie Kinsey, Alon Z. Lindsay, Rancourt Rocks, Jess B. 3125, The Library Punk, Smaracuya, Ducklin, Escapologist G.I., Emily's Tangents, Wandering Taylor, Riley Brathwaite, Britbird 46, Anik Blaze, Lottie Lousy, Angsty Tadpole, Rye PTX, Alicia Ardelian, Becoming Myself 5, Raram 14, Tallulah Rising, Steph with an EF, Kathy Herridge, Lile Lowe, Grebditch, Michael Jespin, O'Reilly 42, Two Bozzy Dames, J Max SFU, Matt L.A. Schneider, El Bourgon, Ambient Relish, Leah Librarian, Indigo Han, Serious Rachel, John Atas, Casper TK, E.T. Kessler, Rosie Powell, Mariah Mitsuda, M. Kmar, Ugh. Uh, Sherlock Wrights, Persephone, It's Muisha, Alan Matley, Rosie Liz, Ravenclaw Books, Jeannie Kim, Kristen Hippie, Rent a Good Book, and Alex Mack. Feel free to let me know if I said any or all of those incorrectly. I feel like the younger our listenership gets, the harder it is to say their Twitter handles. (laughs) If you want to hear your name mispronounced on the podcast, just tweet at or about us at ohwitchplease on Twitter. Tune in next time for another episode as we continue to spookily do in death what we could not complete in life. But until then... Later, witches! (laughs) 